I don't remember the last time I didn't feel tired. When I get out of bed, even the floor looks like a comfortable place to lie back down. My eyes remain closed throughout the gospel. It takes everything I have not to crawl back under the covers. I did not find the map Prudence said my mother had. I searched most of last night, and I didn't find any map to speak of, not even one of Stalford. Every room of my hut now looks like a wild horse has run through it. Shelves are half-emptied, drawers rifled through and in disarray. I'm not sure when I'll have time to clean up the mess, but it's not today. I get dressed, grabbing pants and shirt off the floor. Then I grab my gun and make my way to the stable to get Moon. I can't face Prudence. Not yet. If last night wasn't a fever dream, if she knew my mother was leaving long before she did, then I don't know what to do. For some reason, the thought of it makes me furious, as if Prudence was the one who convinced my mother to leave. Or maybe that she didn't try to stop her. If I walk into her bedroom right now, I would lash out, even though she is dying, despite her skin being covered by a sickly sweet smell, despite the sunkenness of her cheeks, her frailty. These things would not be barrier enough to stop me from saying something cruel and unforgivable. So I need time to let my anger burn itself out before I go back into her bedroom. Angry words won't be the last ones between us, not after everything she's done for me. I pull Moon out of the barn and get into the saddle. As I ride away from the barn, I turn to look at Prue's hut. Rita is standing at her bedroom window. She doesn't smile or hold up a hand to wave, but she doesn't frown or look away either. The air in the streets is thick with worship. I can hear the chanting from several roads away, and I tie Moon besides Jacob's horse. He staked out a decent spot not too far from the diner. The chanting seems louder today, but calmer. When I get into the diner, my deputies are already crowded around our table, ready for what's ahead. I curse myself for not getting more sleep and walk over to them. Let's do this. They nod. I turn to face everyone in the diner, and everyone falls silent, as if they've been waiting for some sort of announcement all morning. So, as you all know, Clarice was shot yesterday, and you also know that the shooter was apprehended and has since died. Some murmurs float towards us at the table, but I raise a hand and they stop. However, Clarice was not his only victim. I leave my hand raised to stave off any commotion. A few days ago, we found Sid dead in the forest. We have reason to believe, I look directly at Abe, that other people here were targets of the same shooter. I move my gaze to catch Della's eye, and we have evidence linking other crimes to Sid's house. I don't tell them of old Rainier's cooking pot showing up at Sid's. Who was he? James calls out from the farmer's table. We don't know yet. Do you have any leads? Kaylee calls over, leaning lazily up against the counter. No, I tell her. 
but we would appreciate any information anyone has on why certain people were targeted. Anything at all. Anything you've heard, we want to hear it. I look back at Abe, then back to Kaylee. Kaylee is looking at Abe, and something passes between them. She nods, ever so slightly. Okay, I've got a clue for you. She says and disappears behind the counter and into the kitchen. I turn to look at my deputies, and they're all staring at me like I know what's going on. Okay? I call after her, and it comes up more like a question than I want it to. Kaylee is already coming back with a small silver box. What is that? I walk over to her as she sets it onto the counter right in front of Abe and Della. Neither of them looks happy. It's all because of this stupid thing, Kaylee says. What is it? I stare at it. It looks strangely familiar with its knobs and silver shine. Della pushes against one of its protrusions and there is a clicking sound. Then a strange wailing leaks from the box. I inhale sharply. What is it doing? I palm my gun, ready to shoot it. Della doesn't look phased. She sighs like she's bored. Right now, it's not doing anything. It's waiting. Waiting for what? I stare at her. She looks to the ceiling and tilts her head forward, as if trying to think of the right words to explain. It's waiting to receive something. This time, I don't ask what and just keep staring at her. Messages. It can receive messages. The wailing continues, and now a soft clicking interrupts its howl every few seconds or so. I realize I've heard this sound before. In the woods. Inside the bird that fell from the sky. Its walls were covered in the same lights, the same type of sound echoing through that tiny chamber with the burnt man's body. What kind of messages? I ask her, but Abe answers for her. That we don't know. And why would anyone want to kill you for it? That we also don't know, Della says. I turn to look around the diner. No one looks surprised by the howling box. You all knew about this? I look towards Pila and Tori, the farmer's table, and then back at Kaylee. Silence and big, innocent eyes answer my question. God damn it, you should have told me! I hiss and look back to Abe and Della. So what does Sid have to do with any of this? They exchange a look, and Della starts talking. He came to us a few months ago, she says. Sid did. He had found this box, washed up on the beach one day. He said he was able to receive messages and send messages, but only for a while. Then, one day it stopped working. He couldn't figure out what to do, at first. She gestures towards her father. We thought he'd gone crazy. He said he was talking to people from beyond the Forbidden Zone, that they were going to try and meet, that they were going to get food for all of us, for their people, and for us. She looks around the diner, and everyone stares down at their plates. I mean, we all know that things aren't quite as easy as they used to be. Abe clears his throat and cuts his daughter off. What Della is trying to say is that things could be more plentiful, but that we always trust that Gara is giving us what we need, that sometimes a little less is maybe exactly what we need. Della looks annoyed 
and then continues the story. Right. Well, Sid said that the box was a way to receive messages and to send them, but that one day it just stopped working. He wanted us to fix it, since we fix all the wave boxes in town. He thought that we might be able to. I looked down at the box. The wailing has given way to a terrible hissing sound, like too many wet logs thrown onto a fire. Did you? It doesn't sound like any messages are being received, as far as I can tell. Yes, Della says, looking around the diner. It just needed more power. It had this amazing little contraption inside that can stir electricity, without churning or anything. And it's not like a mechanical arm, either. It just holds the electricity inside itself, somehow. Her eyes light up as she says this. I'm not sure how it works yet, exactly, but I'm close. We're close. She smiles at her father. Can you imagine? You could just use a bulb without churning it. Just have light, just like that, and walk around the room. This sounds crazy to me, but I'm more interested in the messages. Maybe one of the messages will tell us why Sid and Clarice were killed. When did you get the messages? I interrupt Della, who is still going on about the bulbs. She stops talking, then, with a sheepish look, says, We usually listen to them before you get here. We weren't able to understand most of them. They're different somehow. Words, but spoken in other ways. Sounds, but not like ours. But sometimes... She pauses and looks around the diner. There are words we recognize, or entire messages we can understand. Okay. I look at Della, at Abe. Why couldn't you let me listen to the message? I come to this diner every morning. Seems like a lot of trouble to hide that thing every time I walk through the door. Your law. Abe looks down at the floor, then quietly. And it's a sin to listen to anything but the gospel. But this is different. Even as I say it, I know that Abe is right. Our wave boxes receive only the gospel, nothing else. We are only to listen to the words of Gara, nothing else. It's the law, and I enforce the law of Gara, nothing else. They were just protecting themselves. I let it go. So, after you fixed it, what happened then? I lean forward, trying to force Abe to look up. Sid disappeared. He glances up at me, looks back down at the counter, and he never came back to get it. Were there any messages that might tell us why that man killed him? Everyone in the diner collectively shakes their head. What were the messages that you could understand? This box isn't a goddamn clue. I think to myself, it's a nuisance, and the screeching sounds coming from it are starting to give me a headache. Can you turn it off, please? I ask Della, and she reaches over to flick the little protrusion back down to turn it off. But before she can, the terrible crackling is interrupted by something else. Damada! Damada! The box screams at us, and I jump. It goes silent again, then a different voice, terrifyingly calm. The sound of gunshots, far off, muffled, repeating firestorms. What the hell is going on? I stare at the box. It's the messages, Della whispers. Ping, Mr. Okay. The box squawks at us. A man, 
his voice dark and worried. But what are they saying? I shake my head at Della. Della shrugs, but keeps staring at the box like she wants more. The box returns to its wailing and crackling. Della sighs and turns it off with the flick of a finger. So what were the messages about that you could understand? I look around the diner. Nothing. Della breaks the silence. They're usually cut off, but sometimes it's people from a place called Kanda. They say they're going to give food aid. What's food aid? We don't know. Della smiles weakly. But if you're talking about food to give away, you probably have extra. And so Sid probably figured they might want to share it with us. Okay, well, I will be taking that box for evidence. Della looks crestfallen and like she wants to object, but I just shake my head and purse my lips in warning. I need to figure out why the man in green wanted to kill people on my own time. I turn to face the room. Today, we're going to try to find the bodies of Sid's wife and a son. Colin and Scully over there are going to organize you into groups. If you know anyone who has the time to spare today, I look towards the farmers. Please let them know that we could use the help. We're hoping to comb through the entire forest by day's end. Thank you. Without another word, I turn back to the counter, take the noise box in my right hand, and stalk out. Wait, Sheriff, what am I supposed to do? Jacob is beside me within seconds. You didn't mention me helping with the search. That's because you're coming with me. What are we doing? Jacob looks slightly distressed as I keep marching towards the horses, forcing him to keep up. The Forbidden Zone. I don't think Colin can handle it, and I need to check something. It's your lucky day, Jacob. Jacob's jaw drops. But before he can protest, I've already mounted Moon and am headed down the trail towards the frozen forest. It's silent in the woods this morning. Winter has overpowered fall faster than I've ever witnessed. The ground crunches beneath us. Frost clings to the branches as we ride beneath them on the path. The golden leaves that covered everything just yesterday seem to have vanished. Finally, I veer off to the left and head west towards the Forbidden Zone. When he hesitates, I consider reminding Jacob that I've given him a direct order, but soon I can hear Tinker's hooves behind me as they brush among the dense, frozen ground. May I ask what we are going to check on? The woods are dense, and Jacob is forced to ride behind me. That wailing box that Della and Abe had? Yes. He sounds tentative. The burnt man I pulled out of the flying thing? He had something like it. All the lights and the strange squealing sounds. So what do you want to do with it? There's a pause between us. I want to see if I can get them to talk to each other. I finally say, Why? Jacob sounds confused. Because then we know that the men and the flying bird things are talking to each other. Who cares? Jacob says, confused. I stop and turn to him. Because it would mean that Gara isn't angry with us at all. Because then the lights on the beach? They're just a bunch of men flying around, sending each other messages for Gara knows what reason. Gara herself would have nothing to do with it. It would mean she isn't angry with us at all. 
or at least that the lights in the sky have nothing to do with it. Jacob squints and knits his eyebrows together. We ride on in silence. Are you sure you know where it went down? Jacob says, after we've been riding through the woods for a long time. The sun is high in the sky now. A white, gray light illuminates what little ground is visible among the dense trees. Yeah, it's not much further. We pass a dense cluster of oak trees, and I see the spot ahead. It was right here. What the? I slide off Moon's back and fight my way through the bushes to where the giant flying thing landed just days earlier. Jacob sighs quietly and comes over to me reluctantly. The ground is leveled, he says when he catches up and looks around, confused, then worried. I told you I knew where it was. I spin around in a circle. It's all gone. The flying thing itself, the debris scattered as far as I could see that night, all disappeared. The ground where the fires were burning has been turned over, tilled, no frost, as if someone were to feed seeds into the soil tonight. We stand in the small clearing and look around us. Some of the trees have been burnt down to stumps. There is a strange smell in the air. It's deadly silent. What do you think happened to it? Jacob whispers and then gently grabs my arm. I look at him and his eyes are wide. I blink, scared to speak. I'm getting the feeling that we're being watched. Then, as if putting on a show... Jacob says, louder than need be, Maybe Gar took it back into the sky. Maybe, I say, matching his tone. Jacob loosens the grip around my arm as he realizes I've caught on. Oh well, I continue. Best to just head back then. We start walking towards the horses. Fast, but not fast enough to look suspicious. At least I hope so. Then we get into our saddles and make the horses move through the woods, back towards the trail, as fast as they can go. Did you see anyone out there? We've made it back to the trail in Stallford, and now we're galloping at full speed. More than one. Jacob pants, and a chill runs down my arms. Maybe five or six, right behind where you're standing. We wouldn't have stood a chance. Gar, I whisper. Sweat drips down my spine towards the saddle. Three of the people who got near that noisy box got shot. Two of them dead. And now they clean up the site where something crashed. Something that also had a box like that. Jacob tries to reason through it, his breath coming out ragged. We haven't slowed down one bit since getting back on the trail. The horses seem to sense our fear and their hooves pound in quick bursts. They? Who do you think it is? I pant back at Jacob. Who cares most about enforcing the law of Gara? He looks at me as if it's obvious. I mutter, guard damn it, under my breath, realizing what Jacob is saying. If he's right, we're dead meat. When we see the law offices ahead, we fall into a trot. It doesn't look like anyone is back from the search yet. We keep looking over our shoulder and tie up the horses as fast as we can. Inside, 
I sit by the window and look out, standing guard. I don't think the men Jacob saw in the forest followed us all the way back, but keeping watch eases the tension in my chest just a little. Sheriff, Jacob says and hands me a mug of brew. I startle. I didn't even notice him going up back to boil water. Thanks. I purse my lips and blow across the hot water surface, then take a sip, burning my mouth anyway. Sorry, hot. Jacob smiles. He's still standing next to me, with his own mug clasped in his hands, looking out onto the road. It'll cool. I look back outside. Jacob, can I ask you something? Mm-hmm. I take this as a yes and go on. Why did you stop treating me like I was sheriff a year into the job? When I came back from New York, everything was fine, and then you just... I motion upward with my right fingers. Flipped. At first, I think he's going to ignore my question, but then Jacob sighs. I was jealous, he says. I held it in for a year, and then I just couldn't anymore. My dad was sheriff. I was supposed to be sheriff when he died. I never thought it would be any other way. Not once. My entire life, I never thought someone else could be sheriff but me. And then, Colin started to look up to you a lot. That didn't help. I see. I blow on my tea again. But I am sheriff, so wouldn't it make sense for him to look up to me? Yeah, but I wanted him to look up to me. Jacob's voice is tinged with sadness. He's my little brother, and he's always wanted to be like me, or like my dad. And then you caught Ronan Kane and became sheriff of the outpost. And then, all of a sudden, Colin didn't want to be like me at all. He wanted to be like you. It was all, Sheriff Rose did this, and Sheriff Rose said that. I turn and laugh. Oh, come on, Jacob. Don't get butt hurt the second there's a little competition. He looks like he is, but nods. I'm trying my best not to. Good. We turn to watch the road again. A few stray leaves tumble past outside. The sun is starting to set early these days, and darkness is slowly crawling along the road towards us. Just then, we see Colin ride up with two of the farmers. Both of the farmers' horses have dark shapes slung over their saddles. Jacob and I run outside to meet them. We help them pull the bodies, wrapped in cloth, down from their horses. Then we lay them onto the ground before us, and I pull back the cloth that swaddles the larger of the two. I turn away immediately. Is this how you found them? I push my sleeve up against my face and force myself to look back down. Colin and Jacob are beside me now, leaning in, but the two farmers are standing several feet away, close to their horses. Gara, Jacob utters. If you don't need anything else, Sheriff, we're going to be going. One of the farmers says. They don't wait for an answer. They mount their horses and leave. They must have been out there in the woods for a while, Colin says as I pull the cloth back over Sid's dead wife's face. How long do you think? Jacob turns to me. A lot longer than Sid, that's for sure. He must have stayed alive somehow. Maybe he got away. Maybe he ran. 
and left his family? Colin shakes his head. I don't want to know. I just don't want to know anymore. He keeps shaking his head like he can shake out all the bad things he's seen or heard over the last few days and then takes a few steps away from us, still shaking it quickly, left, right, left, right, his eyes closed. Well, at least we can have the funeral tomorrow. In the state they're in, I mean, we have to. I turn to face the brothers. Let's get them inside. Jacob and I grab the woman's body, and Colin picks up the boys, small enough that he doesn't need our help. It drapes over his arms like the cloth is empty, and I can see Colin swallow deeply, holding back tears. We bring them into the basement room, and because there are so many bodies on top of the plank, we have to secure them with the rope before lowering them back down into the well that has no water. I hope this is all over now. Colin mumbles to himself as the plank hits the bottom below. Jacob and I look at each other. We don't mention the clearing in the Forbidden Zone. We don't mention who we think is really after anyone who got in contact with the noise box. Colin is better off not knowing, better off thinking it's done now that the man in green is dead. We head home for the night, and I wave to the brothers as I ride off and head towards my own hut while they continue down the trail towards theirs. I'm carrying the noise box in my satchel. It feels like it's burning a hole into it. When I get home, I bring Moon back to the barn and hide the silver box among the dried grass that is her bed. She'll keep watch over it until I get back. Then I pass the entrance to my own hut and head straight towards Prudence. Rita is sitting at her bedside, and when she turns to look at me as I come in, her face looks drawn. She stands up when I get closer and gestures for me to lie down. Tonight, stay. Is all she says. Then she takes her things, and moments later, I can hear the front door shut behind her. Hello, my little Harper. Prudence whispers. Her voice is so quiet, I have to hold my breath to hear her. Hi, Prue. I whisper back at her. I take my boots off and lie down next to her on the bed. When I was little, I'd sleep in her bed all the time. I would get excited because I would hear a sound outside, and I would run to Prudence and tell her that my mother was back, that she had returned to our hut. Prudence would take me by the hand, and we would walk next door to check. But my mother never returned. And every time we went over there, my little hand would slip out of Prue's big hand, and I would run through the hut, looking into every room, until I realized they were all empty. When we would get home, I would crawl into her bed, and I would lean against her shoulder and cry myself to sleep while she stroked my hair. I missed you, little Harper. Prudence murmurs, half asleep. I missed you too, Prue. Prudence's head falls against my shoulder, and I stroke her hair, wiry and gray after all these years. For a long time, I just listen to the shallow rattling in her chest. When I wake, I realize that I have missed her last breath.